Before we jump into today's episode, I have some exciting news to share with you. One of the questions I get asked all the time is, do you have any tips to help our team while we're conducting our equity audits? Well, now I do. Get my brand new ebook, Three Essential Questions Every Equity Team Must Ask to Conduct Equity Audits That Make Real Change. It's your team's blueprint for action. Plus, the book comes with a cheat sheet guide at the end that can help your team use it to support your work. As I've been sharing it with folks, they've asked, well, is it $14.99 or is it $9.99? And you know what? I'm making it absolutely free. (laughs) That's right. I just want to get this information into the hands of the people who need it for absolutely free. To get your free copy, all you need to do is to go to equityaudits.com forward slash ebook. That's equityaudits with an S dot com forward slash ebook. Enter your name and your best email address and I'll send it to you right away. So grab your free copy now. All right. On to today's episode. Have you ever wondered what it would take to truly support and retain educators of color in schools and districts? Or do you know what are the real drivers for why educators of color leave schools and districts? It's probably not what you think. Well, if you're interested in either of these questions, you are in the right place. Hi, I'm Dr. Terrence L. Green. I'm a tenure professor, and I've helped to prepare hundreds of racially just and anti-racist school leaders, and I want to help you. That's why I created this podcast to provide you and your team with real-world insights and practices that work so that you can collectively build racially just schools. On this episode, I had the honor of speaking with Dr. Andrea Torero Gabadon, who is a professor of education, a professional learning designer and facilitator, and a qualitative researcher who is based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Dr. Torero Gabadon's work explores the relationship between school organizational conditions, educator diversity, and culturally responsive and sustaining practices and systems. She is the founder and principal consultant at ILM Consulting Group where she works with both pre-service teachers and educators, but also mentors and coaches school leaders. She is a former classroom teacher and former assistant principal and holds a PhD from Temple University. She is also the author of the best-selling book, Support and Retain Educators of Color, Six Principles for Culturally Affirming Leadership. During our conversation, we discuss how to support and retain educators of color. We also talked about the importance of school districts getting clear on their motivations for why they want to diversify their educators. We also talked about, you know, what a school or district might do to start to repair some harm they may have done to educators of color. And we also talked about how districts might support school principals who want to what we call in this go off the script and do the racial justice work that is really needed we talk about this in so so much more this is an episode you definitely want to make sure you're listening to and if you're ready to get into today's episode we will in one second but first i have a special announcer welcome to the racial justice podcast with your host dr terrence great. he's my daddy and he's the best let's go
Welcome to the Racially Just Schools podcast. My name is Terrence L. Green and I am your host. Hey, yo, you are in for a treat today. We have the one and only Dr. Andrea Torero Gabadon in the building. Welcome to the Racially Just Schools podcast, Dr. Gabadon. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. Glad to have you here. I, I want to hop right in and talk about your book, um, Support and Retain Teachers of Color. And folks who are joining the podcast, I highly recommend you go out and get this book. If you are really serious and interested, like how do we really keep our black teachers, our Latinx teachers? How do we keep our Asian Pacific? This is the book you need to go and get. So thank you for writing this book. And the book does something beautiful, which I always try to to strive for this, this, this tension that emerges when you're trying to be both theoretically rich but also powerfully practical. I think you could be powerfully practical and have no theory and just end up doing a whole bunch of stuff. And then sometimes I think you could be so theoretically deep that you off the page. Can't nobody even follow what you're doing. You ain't even connected to reality, but you have a great balance in this book. So I'm super excited to talk about it. To kind of set the context for it, um, when I think about particularly educators of color, but specifically black educators, I think about a couple markers in history. One, I think about the work of Dr. Jim Anderson, um, the education of blacks in the South, uh, 1865 to 1930, and thinking about what black folks did to create education institutions, but also the profession of education. But also think about Brown, particularly post-Brown, one and two, which we're about to celebrate the 70th, 70th anniversary next year of Brown one. But I think people fail to realize that Brown took out a whole group of not just principals, but teachers, right? And so I think then now more recently to the pandemic and thinking if you allow it a, a post-pandemic era um, where folks are leaving the profession from superintendents, from custodial workers to teachers to paraprofessionals uh, in alarming rate. So I'm curious, one, what's the landscape now for educators of color in kind of like this post-pandemic area era? And then two, how did that kind of shape what schools and districts need to be thinking about in terms of supporting teachers of color within this particular context? Yeah, you know, I really appreciate that parallel that you draw, right, between like significant social and cultural moments and how that impacts the teacher workforce. Like we don't talk about that enough, right? Like we often think about teaching in silos. Um, I think the pandemic certainly has disrupted that a little bit. Um, as we all know, right, like during the pandemic, um, it brought to light, right, these pre-existing inequalities that were apparent in schools, right? Um, if you know anything about schools, you know schools are a microcosm of society, right? But for a lot of people working in schools, specifically district and building leaders, it came of a surprise, right, um, that not just kids, but educators themselves were experiencing like these structural inequalities. And so we saw, particularly after the murder of George Floyd, right, this massive shift to, okay, so if there's racial inequality in society, let's now address that within the context of the school and swing towards equity training, right, or cultural competency training or anti-racism. Let's start a book club. And that's all well and fine. Um, but your question being, what's the landscape now that the pandemic is over? Well, we're seeing the pendulum swing now in the opposite direction, where all of those equity kind of focused uh, initiatives are now being uh, done away with, either silently or explicitly. And we see that happening in the form of these book bans, right, 
um, among other things that are being banned, but specifically, you know, the book bans come to mind in ways that equity is now being demonized or if you want to put it lightly, right, it's it's considered not not essential anymore. And so what does that do for our educators of color, right? It, it goes back and it erases, um, it, it seeks to overlook and ignore the racial the racial experiences that educators of color are having in their schools. Um, it seeks to undo some of the the forward movement that was done in terms of improving racial climates for educators of color. Um, and it leaves us in a precarious place. So right now, everyone's talking about the teacher shortage. We got to keep our teachers. We got to you know, be creative in our recruitment and our retention strategies. But what I would love to see folks do is return back to these equity-based and anti-racist initiatives and see that as a necessary commitment to retain educators of color, right? It can't just be the flavor of the month, the flavor of the year. This is what we're going to do in response to a social movement. No, we have to recognize that schools, again, are microcosm of society. Educators are facing a variety of things outside the school, inside the school. They are internalizing a lot from their colleagues, from their kids, from parents, from community members. And it is critical that like we amplify anti-racism at its core um, as a way of telling these teachers that they matter, right? In schools. That's I see that as really the one of the fundamental things that needs to happen to, to support and retain educators of color, particularly at this point post-pandemic. No, that's that's super, that's good. Um, I think that. That's that's spot on because I mean I've even struggled with that at a university level where um you know I already was skeptical to begin with. And critical race theory teaches us that there are always these retrenchments, there are these backlashes that that they are to emerge. So we understood that. But just the the hypocrisy, it is like, you know, you're saying equity, diversity, racial justice on one end and then you know two three years later you forgot all about it um and it it leaves a very sour taste in your mouth but it also i think creates a, a reality to where people can start to build new possibilities because you understand the institutions that you're in you understand how they function and i think it actually can create the possibility for organizing and so I appreciate you really naming this. And one of the things I, I really appreciate in the book is you talk about um, culturally affirming leadership and that being, I believe, super important in this particular context. And I really, really appreciate that in the book you go in and you differentiate between culturally relevant pedagogy by Dr. Gloria Ladson Billings and culturally responsive teaching by Dr. Geneva Gay, which people conflate like they they're theoretically similar, but they are some they have divergences. Right. And so I appreciate that. But you talk about culturally affirming leadership. Could you talk a little bit about how you describe what that is? And then if you went into a school, like what might you see? What might you hear? What might you feel? What might you experience when culturally affirming leadership is actually in operation? So in terms of culturally affirming uh, leadership, um, if it's all right with you, Marito, just a quick quote from page two. But I write... Um, that culture affirming leadership practices are characterized by supportive 
and positive relationships across the lines of difference. Such relationships are cross-cultural, interracial, intergenerational, and emblematic of sincere connection and belonging. Um, I go on and talk obviously more about it, but I think what's kind of key here is the ways in which whiteness is decentered, right? Um, and so when we think about what do I need to do, or is my leadership of a, of a particular space culturally affirming, I would say in which how are you actively dismantling or interrogating the ways in which whiteness shows up in your work, right? In what ways are you amplifying other ways of being, other ways of knowing, right? In your school community, not just for kids, but also creating a safe space for staff um, to acknowledge and uh, enact and walk in, right, the fullness of their cultural ways of being and, and all the ways that that shows up, right? Um, and so what does that look like, sound like, feel like within the school context where whiteness is being decentered? It shows up in the curriculum, right? Like whose voices are being heard? What questions are we asking uh, about the curriculum? Who are we reading? What are their life experiences, right? But to go even deeper, it's around staffing, right? Who is who is being staffed where? How is power um, being shared and distributed, right? Uh, equitably across staff. Um, we also can think about school norms and expectations. You can even think about PD, right? Like whiteness shows up in PD all the time, right? Um, I was facilitating a PD just last night with some just dope affinity group facilitators that I work with in Philadelphia. And I'm I'm facilitating this PD and I'm just like, man, like there's this beautiful thing around community that we need to sit in right now. And I just, in the middle of the PD, just absolutely had to change the ways that I was conducting the PD because there was a need for healing, connectivity, for discussion in a whole group setting where my mind initially was like, all right, we're going to get to our action steps. We're going to do. And so, and I think it's important that I name that even of myself because when we think about culturally affirming leadership, this isn't something for white folks to take, you know, to champion in their work. All of us need to think about how are we interrogating whiteness and the ways that it shows up in our leadership? Um, and how are we making sure that we, um, even as folks of color, are being culturally affirming uh, and making intentional moves to do so as we engage with people across the lines of difference, right? So we know not all skin folk are kinfolk, right? But thinking about all the other identity markers, are we creating safe spaces um, for all people that is inclusive, that is intersectional um, in the ways that we lead? So hopefully, hopefully that helps to kind of clarify because I know culturally affirming leadership can be in a lot of different things in a lot of different spaces. No, that's beautiful. I love that. And I, I loved you share just kind of um, you, you mentioned the word sincerity um, and also being, you know, sensitive and open and spontaneous and extemporaneous in the ways that you need to be as you read the room, what is needed. So now you got me wondering, so say um, a leadership team at a school is because a lot of principals and superintendents, they listen to this. They they are like, you know what? I'm going to read the room. I'm going to um, really enter in and take up like culturally affirming leadership. And so in doing that, you get off the script that has been prescribed to you by the district, potentially. 
I guess what might you say to um, area superintendents or folks who support building leaders about how they may support folks who are embracing this spontaneity to be to discern? You know what I mean? When when there's a time we need to repair is a time for healing is a time we need to build community. Yeah, I know this was on the script, but this is what's needed in this moment. How would you what would you offer to folks who support? leaders, particularly school leaders and campus leaders, on how they might support them in ways to do that type of work? I think that's a beautiful question. And it's so necessary, right? Um, To think about what are the structures and the ecosystem in which school leadership exists, right? Um, There's always a higher up, (laughs) in a sense, that we have to respond to or that we have to navigate. Um, in terms of things to offer, right, those, you know, superintendents, let's say, that are working with folks on the ground in buildings, um, how are you just creating space and that flexibility? You know, we ta- often talk about the ways in which teacher autonomy has been constrained, but I'm wondering how often are we talking about amplifying principal autonomy, right? Giving folks freedom to to go off the script, as you put it. Um, and to do what's best for kids and for staff, right? Um, I would also encourage folks uh, or superintendents to think about what's what's the data saying, right? Um, the data, Goldie Muhammad says something beautiful about like, if our data is low, right? It's not about what's wrong with this population, but how is what we're doing not serving them, right? Uh, and so, what does the data say? Does it support going off the script? Does it support doing something radical? Do you trust? That's another key word, right? Those that you put in positions of leadership and authority and their understandings of the community. And if you don't trust them, right? If if, if you think for some reason that, that they don't deserve your utmost confidence, then why? In what ways have you not supported them to then have your full confidence uh, that they can do the work that you've put out for them? Um, maybe the next chapter, maybe the next book I'll write is around supporting principals, who knows? Uh, but we definitely need to make sure that we're supporting uh, our principals and trusting them ultimately, uh, acknowledging just their inherent agency that they that they know what they can do with their uh, with their buildings, that we're trusting their leadership, and that we're also equipping them with the right tools to make those those decisions when needed. Gotcha. No, this is no, that's powerful. That's very powerful. And even thinking about this larger ecosystem in which this work unfolds. But I think this is super practical around creating space um, around, you know, looking back at the data and being reflective, which I know you talk about this critical reflection, being reflective of ourselves and as an institution and our systems Um, and thinking about this, these notions of critical and radical trust and the dynamics of power um, that are at play. And so you make me I'm curious as you think about those components, because those things need to be in place, right? Because if you, I always like to say, if you just hiring more black and brown people and your system remains the same, you're just putting more black people into a system of white supremacy. So like the system has to shift and have some radical things occur where dynamics of power, where curriculum creates space, everything you are saying. So say those things are underway. Um, And folks are like, you know, the racial, the cultural, the ethnic demographics of our students, um, you know, they are misaligned with who we have teaching. 
Um, and it's interesting. I had a conversation recently that I thought people were pretty clear on like the importance of having like educators of color. But could you talk about the importance of having educators of color in schools, but also dispel some of the mythology around it? Like, I, like I'm not, you know, the super human person. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, and, and blackness is deeply um it's a multiplicity of experiences of blackness and so because i grew up on the east side of detroit and you know little homie grew up on the east side of detroit there may still be some community building that we have to do so i guess i'm saying all that to say you talk about the importance of having more educators of color but also the nuances that are at play when you do have more educators of color now this is so rich uh this is incredibly rich. I mean, the research is clear, right? Educators of color have a particular and specific impact on students that reflect their ethnic racial backgrounds, everything right from lower disciplinary rates. We're talking about higher academic outcomes, higher levels of social belonging, right? More likely to graduate uh, and not even, not even just graduate, right? But move on to college and be successful in college. Taking a step back, like lower instances of being referred to special education services, um, more likely to be in an AP honors uh, course, right? And so the the, the data is clear. Um, children of color thrive when they have educators of color. Um, it's also important to acknowledge um, all kids thrive, right, with a diverse educator workforce. I think many times, you know, I, so I'm in Pennsylvania, right? I'm in Philadelphia. Um, and in Pennsylvania, right, like over 90% of our educator workforce is white. Um, oh goodness. What is the number at this moment? I want to say about, is it 90, it's between 90 and 94 is white, right? And about one third of the school districts at this point in time, um, don't have educators of color, right? So why am I naming this? Because even kids in those districts would benefit right? When we talk about the ways in which um, schooling is not serving certain students, well, what about, well, how can we transform the educator workforce to impact those students, right? In rural schools or predominantly white schools, right? Like Gloria Ladson Billings says something beautiful about like being for her, you know, being a black educator and making intentional decisions to work in white communities because she wanted kids to observe black brilliance, right? Ladson Billings is from Philly, so there's a Philly shout out right there. Um, but that's the importance of it, right? Like seeing not just yourself reflected in an educator, but also seeing someone who disrupts, to your point, right, the stereotypes that are often ingrained in society, in media, um, in curriculum, right, around who 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 is smart, who is an intellectual, who's a scholar. Um, now, I love the fact that you asked about, right, like, to dispel the stereotypes, because I think we often, right, we often talk about the benefits associated with educators of color, but we often conflate, right, this idea of, and I, I, I would like to think that it's a well-meaning mistake, but it's still important to call it out. The ways in which schools that have low performance, 
large numbers of students of color that have been um, facing substantial education debt, right, substantial structural inequalities. Those are the districts that are like, man, we need to diversify our educated workforce. We need to bring in because they're good for our kids. I don't disagree that we want to that they should diversify their educated workforces. But my my wondering is why. Are you looking at a black Latino or an Asian educator as a way of undoing the structural inequality that this student has been exposed to or that this community has been exposed to? Are you looking at them as, well, you're going to fix this problem. We need people like you because, yeah, because you know how to work with those kids, right? Like, what's the attitude? Are we tokenizing, right? Or are we assuming inherent cultural competency when we're bringing these people in, right? What are our underlying assumptions about people of color when we have these initiatives? And so I'm not, you know, it almost seems like, Andrea, like, what are you saying? It doesn't make sense. Everyone needs to diversify their educator workforce. I am convinced of that. And what is your motivation for doing so? Because sometimes in that motivation, we're actually causing or amplifying harm to educators because then we're then putting them in places where they're the, they're the token X, right? You're the token Black man who is now going to be the disciplinarian because, oh, the kids are going to listen to you. Or you're the token Asian. Oh, you're going to, you know, we're, we're going to start this program and you know how to teach, you know, Asian studies. You got this. And it's like, wait, no, I wasn't like, y'all ain't training me to do this. Where's the curriculum? Where's the support? Right? Like, oh, we got uh, Hispanic students that are immigrating. We need Hispanic teachers. Yes. But are you paying them for the extra labor of being the translators to the families? Right? So we really have to, yes, we have to diversify. And are we in our efforts inviting people into spaces where we're valuing like the totality of their humanity, the totality of like what they can offer to our school community, or are we just reducing them to our image of, again, like a racial token, a stereotype, or what we're assuming about their cultural competency because of what we read from a couple of studies, right? And then that's not to knock the studies. The studies are important. But again, cultural competency is not an ingrained trait. <laughs> All of us need support around it, right? So we can't just bring people in and then not support them, but then have an expectation that is unfair, right? Uh, of of what they're gonna of the impact that we hope they have on our kiddos. No, that is that is woo-wee. you cooking now. Nah, you cooking with grease. That is so good right there. Because what is your motivation? You know what I mean? Like, why are you doing what you're doing? And what Derek Bell would call them, he would call these racial symbols. Right. Like you've got representation, but you don't change the larger system and structure in which people are in. And so you have black people, black educators, brown educators who become racial symbols of a white supremacy system. And it's like you do more harm in those contexts. That is a powerful question for people to return to this idea of what is your motivation and why you're doing it. And this goes back to your earlier point about. Um, culturally affirming leadership, having a sense of sincerity with it, right? That it is not um, hypocritical. It is not performative. It is not for show. But I think this grappling with like, why is it that you're doing what you're doing is very powerful and is a beautiful segue into one of the principles that you talk about in the book around cultivating um, critical 
reflection and self-awareness. And so what if a school is or district is like, you know what, we need to diversify our educator our educator workforce. And other thing, I forgot you said that in there. The free labor. Now, hold on now. Why are you trying to extract all this free labor from black and brown people, especially don't try to extract free labor from me? I mean, like, you're right. And my colleague, I got a colleague, Rich Reddick, he writes about the black tax, that there's this additional tax that's placed on like black educators, because even though we have job descriptions, there are just a number of things um, that we also experience. But you talk about this idea of cultivating critical reflection and self-awareness and even make the argument that is not that educators of color always leave because of pay, but it, it is the, the institutional racist dynamics, white supremacy dynamics is the interpersonal relationships that people be having while they leave. And so what if someone is, 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 is um, taking up this podcast today and they're saying, and they have this discourse, we want more educators of color, but they haven't done that critical interrogation. What might you offer as some things that a district, that a board, that a school can begin to do to interrogate and have some critical reflection and awareness around their motives for wanting to have more educators of color? I mean, I think there's there's a lot of different things, right, that could probably happen um, to create that awareness. I think we need a better understanding of why BIPOC educators matter. Districts, leaders need a better understanding of why BIPOC educators matter. And that's not just acknowledging right the full humanity right that we that we bring into a building but i think part of it is not understanding the social cultural and kind of historical context around communities of color and how struggles inequalities discrimination racism different types of isms have allowed for beautiful legacies of activism, of, of teacher activism, of educator activism. And that's why, I mean, I write about this, I think in the in the first chapter, right? Like there's like a little bit around here are the benefits, right? Because everybody knows about the benefits. But again, what can we offer to districts? It's like, all right, well, what have you, what do you know about the about cultural uplift in uh, or as as a theoretical trend within Black education, right? What do you know about Black a, uh, educator activists who are at the front lines of advocating for public education in the South when Southerners didn't want it, right? What do you know about, you know, people, who, communities who would come together and fund schools? Like, what do you know about, you know, um, going beyond stand and deliver? But what do you know about Latino educators in the South, in the West, right, who were doing amazing work advocating for children, for multilingual children, right, to advance equitable conditions um, and ultimately advancing, right, kids' success. We need a bigger picture and a better understanding of the communities, the ancestors that that modern day BIPOC educators, we're standing on their shoulders, right? We're an extension. We're we're the promise of their legacy. 
but we're coming from such a, an amazing tradition. And I think when you understand that tradition, that educational tradition and how that manifests in schools, how could that not push you to be like, man, like I want some of that. Like everyone needs to know about this, right? In teacher prep and in, you know, just regular in-service PD, how are we not amplifying the 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 ways that education and activism work hand in hand beautifully for all children? Why are we not participating in that? Right? That is a, a way more compelling argument to me for why we need a diverse educator workforce. When I think about my own babies, I I want them to understand and, and have access to educators that that uh, are descendants of this magnificent lineage, right? Um, not just, you know, this is the one teacher who who's going to do X, right? Like that's such a, uh, a narrow understanding. That's not who we are. That's not the communities that we bring. And so again, going back to your question, like I would encourage leaders, like expand your understanding of the importance of educator diversity. Um, I, you know, I, I provide, you know, some historical context in the book, but there's so many beautiful resources out there just to really understand the fullness of American education and all the different players whose voices are often absent, but have played such a critical role um, in, in, in social justice, right, in education um, for all children. That is, that's beautiful. You said we need a bigger picture and a better understanding. Yes. So much you said there, but that really, really resonated with me because I have, can't tell you the number of districts that I have talked to who want more educators of color so that they can improve the test scores of, you know, their, their students of color. And I don't think that is incorrect, but I think it's incomplete, right? And so if that is the totality of why you want to diversify educators of color, you are missing the vastness, the complexity, the beauty of that historical and contemporary arc that you just narrated there. And that is a that's a different set of values and motivations and approaches to the work and so that is super super powerful um yeah that magnificent lineage yes 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 that's so much there so so rich there um i'm curious if you could talk about um if you are listening to this this is definitely one you want to listen with your team you this is one of the episodes you want to send to uh the person in hr the person who is your super the superintendent the school board, you, this is an episode, y'all, I'm saying you definitely want to share um, because Andrea's dropping some gems here. So thank you so much. But I'm curious if um, one of the things you talk about is, you know, a principle of assessing, but not getting stuck in assessing and doing something with that, taking action. And what I often find is that like people, they are, they can assess, they can, you know, look at data, but then they don't, sometimes they struggle with how do I take what I'm learning and seeing from the data to actually engage in some tangible actions that actually do something. And so I'm curious, you write about this principle, what might you offer to districts, to schools, 
to boards who are are assessing. So we've talked about, you know, you gave some beautiful questions to think about the motivations. So now they're in this assessing stage. What, what might you offer? And you mentioned this in the book of how people can start to actualize the things that they learn from the assessments that they've conducted. And so with with the principle in the book, uh, principle three, assessment plan for action, it's twofold for a purpose, right? So I'm not going to talk too much about the assess piece because we have a we have so much data in schools, right? We're constantly surveying uh, staff. We have you know culture surveys. We have you know uh, check ins, right? There's so many different ways that we uh, are collecting the data. So what I would offer is not necessarily collect the data, even though that's important. And there's different forms of data that I believe um, are critical to understanding right, uh, the racial climate in schools. But how are you looking at the data? Is the way that you're looking at data disaggregated, right? And, and not just looking by race, but also thinking about potentially other identity markers as well. Thinking about maybe years of teaching or content area or uh, looking at like who's managing, right? Different um, educators or the you know, their tenure status, right? Um, I, t- I advance this idea of intersecting identities uh, in the book, pulling from the work of Kimberly Crenshaw and others. And so I would encourage folks to have uh, definitely an intersectional lens as they're examining the data. The part two of that, right, is who's looking at the data. So who are you bringing in to examine? Uh, is your team diverse? Do you need to maybe bring in another party, right, to help uh, disentangle what it is that you're examining. What questions do you need to ask of the data, right? Um, and is more data needed? I think all those are critical things in terms of that assessment plan. In terms of the actual planning for action, who's owning and what does accountability look like, right? We all know we got to write our SPART goals. We all know about benchmarks and indicators, right? Like, if neoliberalism has taught us nothing else, it's about how to write like a good plan in schools. I think at its core around like who is owning what and how are we holding them accountable to change? I, uh, in, in my work, um, you know, I have a chance to engage leaders, district and building leaders all the time. And they want to engage in these initiatives and they have owners uh, of these various tasks, but when you talk about accountability, right, people go silent. And so we really want to think about if we're going to take this work seriously, are you willing to be held accountable, not just by your internal leadership team, but also by the teachers, right, by the students? In what ways are you making your initiatives transparent? Uh, and there's a sense of vulnerability in that, which is why I think sometimes people fall, want to fall back. But it is nearly impossible, I would argue, to move forward in any anti-racist initiative that is going to make tremendous impact if you're not allowing someone to say, hey, how's it going? Are you actually doing what it is that you committed to? So we need to we need to hold ourselves accountable for sure. Uh, you're right. You're you're yes, for sure. And as and as I think about the idea of holding um, ourselves accountable. I think about this other principle that you write about of uh, kind of fostering supportive environments for culturally responsive approaches and, and thinking about the conditions, the environments um, that are fostered and emerged within schools and within districts. 
I start to think one about um, the ways in which leaders have upheld uh, very harmful environments and some of the repair that needs to be done to the harm that has ensued from maybe they didn't create it, but they upheld it and didn't disrupt it. I guess what might you offer to um, district leaders, uh, school leaders, teacher leaders, folks who have created the conditions for environments that are very harmful for educators of color? How might they go about trying to uh, repair some of the harms that were inflicted because of the environments that they've created? I mean, I think it's important for for leaders to name that harm, right? To name and acknowledge the harm that existed and the ways in which they were actively engaged in uh, creating those conditions of harm or the ways that they were complicit, right? By the ways that they were passive. Um, And so naming, apologizing, and then talking about what they're going to do differently to ensure right? That this doesn't happen again. And if it does, then what their response will be, right? And so, and I talked about this in, you know, your last question, but within that way, in articulating a plan, there's also this sense of accountability. When you are publicly acknowledging harm, when you're actively saying, this is what we're going to do as a school differently, it creates a space where folks can now hold you accountable. And again, that is what we need to do if we are going to create different racial, a different racial climate for educators of color in our building, if we don't acknowledge those microaggressions, or if we don't acknowledge our failed initiatives, if we don't talk about the ways in which we're going to create a different system to hopefully produce a different outcome, then you know we can't be surprised when when harm surfaces again, right? Um, so it's it's a cycle, but it's it's critical that that leaders embrace that type of vulnerability, and there's also it's important to also acknowledge, right? Like in that vulnerability, in the act of apologizing, in the act of creating that plan and articulating that plan and saying, this is how you can hold me accountable. You're also building trust, right? So it's not easy, but the literature would point to, right? This uh, idea that persistent leadership behaviors that demonstrate humility can lead towards trust if you are committed and consistent in moving in that direction. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, well, I know we are coming towards the end of our time together. And I'm just curious, you know, the work that you've been doing as a facilitator, as a educator, teacher, as a administrator, I guess, what do you envision of where we might go next. I remember Jean Anion wrote a book about 15 years ago called Radical Possibilities. Like what are the radical possibilities that you might envision that are not predicated nor constrained by the things that have not worked, that are not predicated or constrained by um a lack of imagination or organized like what what what's next might you imagine for this work to be deeply substantive, profound and powerful? in the lives of, of young people, their families, communities, um, and folks who are supporting them. I appreciate the nod to Angin, who's behind me on my bookshelf right now. Uh, so good stuff, good stuff. 
I think abolition needs to be in our future, right? Like I, when I think about what what could those radical possibilities include, they would have they they can't be divorced from kind of abolishing, right? The ways in which public education has existed in our country, and so when I think about what's what is ideal, right, for for students of color, for educators of color, and what are the conditions in which they can thrive. I'm like, how do we just recreate, how do we abolish this current system? Like, let's not just fix the, this, you know, the school to prison nexus, right? Like, how do we, let's not just think about racial climate. Like, like, what does it look like to completely just overhaul and reimagine all of this and create new systems, new educational environments um, where there's, where, where, where whiteness is just a theoretical construct that maybe is explored in the class, but people are existing in the fullness of their cultural beings and selves and other ways of knowing are just amplified uh, where, where different pedagogical forms can exist, right. And coexist and that's okay. <laughs> right. That's, that is the vision that I would love to see us go towards. Um, I don't know what that looks like. It, you know, some people say, you know, independent schools, micro schools, homeschooling. I don't know. Um, can this occur side by side with public education? I don't know. But just completely redesigning a system that aligns with the growing ethno-racial and cultural diversity of of America, right? Like the system that was created, it didn't. It clearly wasn't designed for some, but it definitely isn't serving the needs of, of 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 American society today. And so, I would love to engage in conversations about what does it look like just to to abolish the system and come up with something new again, where 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 folks can thrive. Beautiful. That's beautiful. Uh, well, thank you so much for sharing all of that. One of the ways I love to end is just by asking some spontaneous questions, and you just kind of give in you know, the first answer that comes to mind. So I just have a few questions. You ready? Let's go for it. All right. Uh, what if there was a movie made about your life? Who would you want to star as you and why? Oh, goodness. The person who immediately comes to mind is Alicia Keys. Um, I loved her. I loved her. That was, that was you know. Ah, when she came out, that was just, just the representation just meant so much. Um, I don't know how that would work because of her age. I don't know if I have to go with someone younger, but I just feel like that would be a good, our vibes are similar. <laughs> so that would work, hopefully. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, Alicia just saw her in concert earlier this year. So that's awesome. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. That uh, original album she put out, that's that's a classic. It doesn't get much better than what is it songs in a minor so classic there's a classic um speaking of songs mm-hmm. what only listen to three artists uh for the rest of your life this could be groups this could be uh you know a soloist it could be however you configure it who would you want to listen to uh if you only can listen to three um groups or people for the rest of your life wow that's tough. Uh, NDRE is number one on the list. Um, I would have to go with, oh goodness. 
uh, Juan Luis Guerra. Uh, he's a Dominican merengue artist. Classic, classic guy. Third one. Oh, goodness. I kind of want to say Cardi B, but only because of her first album. But then I'm also like leaning towards Maverick City Music, which is like on the opposite end. So I don't know. Just one of those. I'll I'll, I'll stick with that. Again, totally different genres, but it'll work. <laughs> I love it. I love it. You got the spectrum. You can worship. You can turn up. <laughs> you can do everything in between. So, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. My final question, if you had to take a nine-hour flight not that mm-hmm. you have a flight that long but you could talk and have a conversation with anyone um that is living has lived um who would you want to have a conversation with mm-hmm. for nine hours and why you said someone living or has lived yep. i would say my grandfather who was my biggest i would say champion um he one of the things that always stands out. He's 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 uh, he passed away a couple of years ago, but he would always ask me if I would move to Puerto Rico and become the secretary of education at the Department of Education. <laughs> and I was like 21, 22. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, stop. But when I think about him and his questions, like, you know, what did you see in my future that I couldn't see at that young age? Um He's probably the only person that I think I could probably talk to besides my partner, but the only other person that I would be able to talk to for about nine hours. So just catch him up on a couple of things that's that have uh, a couple of life updates. So oh, that's beautiful. That is beautiful. Well, where can where can folks learn more about your work? I know you facilitate and you coach mm-hmm. um your book. Like where can folks learn more about you, your work, and what you do and possibly partner with you? Yeah. So um, in terms of the book, uh, it can be found on Amazon, ASD, uh, ASCD.com. Uh, you can connect with me. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, my LLC is ILMConsultingGroup.com. I'll say it one more time. ILM as Instructional Leadership and Management, ConsultingGroup.com. So um, I love to connect. I love to network. I love just talking to people. And so I look forward, hopefully, to connecting with different listeners uh, after this podcast is released. Awesome. And I'll be sure to link all of that in the show notes so folks can easily access it. Um, and again, folks, definitely go out and get this book. I highly encourage you support and retain educators of color. This is a, a powerful book written by an even powerful human being. And so thank you, Dr. Andrea Torero Gavadon, for being here, for breaking bread, for dropping gems, for taking time out of your day. I, oh, I'm going to go back and listen to this. You dropped so many gems. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for the opportunity and for the work that you're doing just to amplify various voices and perspectives in service of our kids. Um, yeah, so it, this is important. Again, thanks. My pleasure. All right, y'all. In the words of old Marty Moss, see you when we see you. Peace. Well, that is it, folks. Thank you so much for joining. I hope you enjoyed it. And I am so excited and really looking forward to our time together during future podcasts. What I need you to do is to please hit the subscribe button, 
share with a friend and please leave a review love reviews and if you want to hear more from me you can head on over to www.raciallyjustschools.com that is www.raciallyjustschools.com when you join our community i have a free video for you on three tips that will make your racial justice work better and again if you love the show hit subscribe rate it and leave a review on itunes and until next time peace